0: Welcome to the Sunday Tennis Q&A with high-performance coach Chris Lewitt. Chris Lewitt is an internationally respected author and educator and is regarded as one of the leading junior development coaches in the world. Join Chris Weekly for the most intelligent tennis talk show on the planet as Chris answers questions from his audience around the world. And now, here's Chris.
1: What's up? Sunday night Q&A live with Chris. That's me. And my co-host Sammy, Sammy, where are you at? Come on, boy, get in here! Oh, 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 oh! There he is! Hey, hey! Yeah, want some lovin'? Say hi to everybody. You look so cozy. Yeah, that's my boy. Look at that face! Look at that face, guys! Look at that face. You love it? You want a little belly rub? Yeah? I haven't seen you all weekend. I've been teaching on the court so so many hours, so many hours. Whoa, 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 whoa! whoa. That's my boy. Hello, everyone. How you doing? All right, we're live. Sunday night. It's Super Bowl Sunday. We'll see. How, how's the game going? I don't even know. I don't know what's going on. I've been in tennis court land, teaching land, for the last 24 hours. I've just been off the radar coaching. It's a little chilly in here, so I got my coat on. I hope that's okay. Guys, it's my Q&A show it's every Sunday night, 9.45 p.m., more or less. I see some friends have already tuned in, Give me a wave here. Guys, I appreciate the waves and the shout-outs. I try to answer your questions from around the world on tennis development, especially junior development, questions about technique, questions about tactics, and we try to have an intelligent conversation, intelligent debate on anything relating to tennis, really. So let me know if you have any questions. Let's see who's watching, see who's tuning in. could be a light show because I'm going head-to-head with the Super Bowl. When does the Super Bowl end? Because then maybe I'll get uh, some extra tune-ins. Let's see. Laura Glitz is watching. What's up, Laura? Larry Klein is watching. Larry's a regular. Love to see the regulars on the program. Nelson Patricio Encalada is waving. What's up, Nelson? Thanks for waving. I appreciate it. Gaju Mangela is waving. Cool. We'll see who pops in tonight. Sometimes we get some big names from the tennis industry popping into the show. And that's always very exciting, too. Sham Sadine K.P. is waving. Sorry if I mispronounced that, but thank you for waving. I appreciate the thumbs up and the shout out. Sammy appreciates it, too. Looks like right now he's licking his belly. Good job, Sammy. Sammy, let me know when you need a night-night tuck. Okay, bud? Ooh, He's doing pretty good. He's not sleeping yet. Sometimes he goes to sleep while I'm working late at night. So it was a very long... Weekend, grinding. You want to say hello? Yeah, come on in here. Get some snuggles going. Sammy boy. You're not sleepy tonight? Probably no one took you for a walk because I was working all weekend, right? I'll take you for a walk first thing in the morning. Guess what? It's getting warmer so we can go for a nice walk. Maybe we can go see some friends too. All right. The gang's all here. Guys, what should we talk about? Let me know if you have any questions. Hey, I see my buddy Brandon's on the show. What's up, Brandon? Thanks for waving. You want to talk about the first four shots? Oh, please, is everyone going to ask me about the first four shots? Craig O'Shaughnessy's work and all this statistics that are being thrown around. We could talk about that. You know, I enjoy talking about that. Like That's definitely been on my mind. It's been all over Facebook recently. I would like to talk about drilling and what's better, long drilling or short drilling. We had a good Facebook debate going about Spanish-style drilling. Do you know that in Spain, sometimes the drills go hundreds of balls? I mean, literally one ball for 10, 15 minutes long. Have you ever heard of drilling like that? Before I went to Spain... I had never seen anything like it. It sort of blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. I, I saw Pato Alvarez working. I was on his court studying with him. And I saw the Bruguera system, the Bruguera method, and they were doing these long exercises. And I had never seen anything like it. I thought it was really cool, really powerful. And I started incorporating those methods in my work back home here. But then I have studied with other Spanish coaches like Jose Higueras in the U.S. and other, you know, great coaches. And they, they've told me that they think that drills in the range of 10 to 20 balls are sufficient, you know, to work a player uh, in a tough way. And so that's sort of my big question. The big debate is, what about ultra-long drilling? Is there a place for ultra-long drilling At Bruguera Academy, the record on the wall where the coach volleys and the player hits ground strokes to the coach, the record is, I believe, 845 shots in a row by Garbine Muguruza. And I don't know if anyone can top that. I know that at Sanchez Casal back in the day, there were some very long ones with Pato Alvarez and some of the coaches there, like with Emilio. And I believe that Arancha. Aranja Sanchez-Vicario has a very long record of like 10, 15 minutes with one ball. Imagine 10 or 15 minutes hitting to the coach while the coach volleys with one ball. That's incredible. And what does that type of drilling do for a player? What are the benefits? You know, I'm interested in talking more about that. Let me see who's checking in here before I start going off on a rant or getting into some Interesting discussion My buddy Brandon's waving BJ Flores is watching. Thank you for waving chandresh Kumar is waving. Thank you guys. Appreciate it Angel Lopez the legend from California Tuning in thanks for waving angel appreciate it Alex Sedano is watching. I think that's my friend Alex. What's up, Alex? How are you? Thanks for waving? Thanks for tuning into the program Let me know if you have any questions, guys. This is uh, my Q&A show, and in order for me to give you an A, I need some cues. I need some questions, so throw them at me. I will try to be the resident expert tonight, and I will try to share my wisdom on junior development and anything technical or tactical or pretty much anything relating to tennis. Let me know if you have any questions, and I'll do my best to answer. We can kick it off. A couple topics we're tossing around tonight are... The first four shots and the statistical research and recommendations about how to train players based on that type of data, very interesting discussion, very big debate. Also on the agenda is long drilling versus short drilling. These are just suggestible topics. These are topics that, are, that have been on my mind this week that are sort of gnawing at me, and you guys are, can feel free to let me know anything, anything that you'd like, any topic that you want. It's not, it's not really my platform to just, you know, talk the whole show about what I want to talk about. I'm really interested in getting the questions and answering, uh, helping you guys, you know, helping you guys with answers. So let me know if you have any questions and I will do my best to respond. Jakub. To Tokars is watching. Or Jacob, thank you so much for waving. We've got some new viewers on the program. Carlos Carrera is waving. What's up, Carlos? Thank you very much for watching. Tyrone Sparks is waving. Julian Pezzarini is waving. Gordon Paul says, hello, Chris. What's up, Gordon? Coming up to the workshop soon. We're going to have a great coaches workshop February 18th and 19th. I'm very excited about that. It's about world class technique and building prodigies. How cool is that? All right, Erwin Bebe Montalvo is waving. What's up, Erwin? We've got all the. We have the smartest community of tennis learners, I believe. The smartest community of tennis coaches and parents and players on this program. I know we do. Thank you guys for tuning in. I appreciate it. And we'll try to keep the intelligence flowing. Brandon says. First question of the night, compact backswing on the one-handed back end, one-handed back end for girls, long sets of short drills. No, I don't think the one handers getting more compact. I don't think it's possible. It's, it's big. That gets me off on a tangent where Brandon, I don't understand how the one-hander still in business. You know, like we talked about, I think it was last week, we were talking about how the two-hander is just better. It's better biomechanically. It's more compact. Can produce the same amount of power with a more compact swing. It's more solid, more stable. Probably takes more stress off the the dominant arm, right? I mean, the two handers just better, right, guys? Two handers better. Am I right? That being said, I still have a number number of one handed conversions that that uh, in my players right now. I have some players who are are one handers, who I converted from two. So I just don't think. I just don't think everyone can play with two hands. I think some kids, their brains are, their brains and nervous systems are wired for one. But what are you thinking about with the compact backswing, Brandon? Can you elaborate? Are you saying you want to make it more compact like the backswing? I don't think you can produce the power without that big windup. I don't think it works biomechanically, does it? I don't think you can get enough juice. What do you guys think? One-handed back end for girls, probably a bad idea. I mean I hate to say it. I just think the one-hander is is it's not as good guys it's not as good and I don't know how I can say that and then also have kids who I convert to a one-hander cuz it just doesn't feel right for them they're more front arm dominant it's it's something to do with their coordination and their their nervous system the the way the brains wired where not everyone can play with two hands it just doesn't feel right for them so I don't know if that's helpful. For girls, it's really bad. Probably a really bad idea, right? I mean, who was the last top girl who had, a female player who had a one-hander? Hennen, maybe? It's so rare. you got to be so strong, and you have to be tall. I mean, it's possible. Maybe you get like, a tall girl who's very athletic. You could probably do it if she's wired for a one-hander, but I definitely prefer two. I prefer two hands with a great slice. Come on, guys. You know what I'm saying. Two hands gives you everything that you need, and then you develop a great one-handed slice. To me, there's no better combo than that. And I, I don't see any reason to advocate or force a one-hander. I don't, I don't believe in some of the, maybe there's some myths, the advantages that there is with a one-hander. There's not, not much that you can't compensate for with the two-handed training. That's how I see it. You know, I also see the future being two forehands. So <laughs> I just, I'm just moving away from the one hand altogether into the more 2 uh either uh, one single-handed forehand on both sides or maybe double-handed on both sides or you know the classic combination of the forehand and the two-handed backhand. I just think it's so solid, man. The two-hand is so solid. I don't know. That's how I see it. Am I missing something, Brandon? What do you think? Brandon says, the compact one-handed backhand emphasizing more of the flip and train fast twitch muscle and take it early. Again, I'm pretty much only training girls and women and have one two-handed backhand right now. You mean one one one-handed backhand? You probably don't have that many one-handers, do you? So Brandon is a top coach in Florida at Saddlebrook. He's working with a lot of ITF girls and Brandon used to work for me. One of the top up-and-coming coaches in the country, Brandon right there, Eridaza. But, Brandon, you, can you clarify? You, you mean one-handed, right? You have just one, one one-hander right now? Because probably most of them are two-handers, right? The girls that you have. I don't think it's going to work. It's an interesting idea. I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you don't try it. But if you look at biomechanically, all the best one-handers in the world of all, of all time, historically, they all have that big wind-up. I don't know if there's a way to flip it. You'd have to check with Brian Gordon. Brian Brian Gordon, Doctor Brian Gordon, could shed some light on that. Maybe Mark Kovacs has an idea on that. Probably Doctor Brian Gordon's the way to go. Why don't you email Brian? I have his email. I can email for him. If, I can email you for him if, if you want. Yeah, uh, one-handed for girls, man. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. It's more the way they're wired. It's the way the kid is wired. It, some kids are not wired. A small percentage of kids are not wired for two hands. So no matter what we say about the two-hander being better theoretically, more compact, better with the open stance, better on the return of serve, all that stuff, all that jazz, you know, it doesn't matter if the kid is not wired for to coordinate two hands. It just doesn't matter. So... Is there a way to make it more – it's a great question, Brandon. You got me thinking now. So in my book, The Tennis Technique Bible, my first book, I wrote about shortening the backswing to make it more, a little more simpler and to try to get some of the advantage that a two-handed backswing has. But I just don't think – I'm not sure you can. it'll, it'll work. How do, you put the, how do you put the arm on stretch? You have, to, you have to use the stretch-shortening cycle, right? And so you got to somehow put the, the the muscles on the muscles of the arm there on stretch, and then pull it through somehow, creating like a lag effect. I I don't know if it's possible, man. Let's talk about it more. I'm not saying no. You got me thinking. You're a smart coach. Have you tried it? I don't think it's gonna work. Yeah, I think if if it was gonna work, we would have seen that innovation, we would probably would have seen that innovation from someone on tour, like, you know, one of the good one-handers like Fed or, or Sitsipas or Vavrinka or, or Dimitrov or any of these guys with great one-handers. You probably would have seen that variation, but you, you never see that. Even with the men, you don't see that, you know. All right. Michael Furman is waving. Thanks for waving, guys. Batyar Hasubuan is waving. Thank you, man. Sorry if I messed up your name. I'm taking your questions, guys, tonight. This is my Sunday night Q&A. You ask the questions. I will try to supply the tennis answers. I prefer you ask me tennis questions because I don't know much about anything else in the world. Questions about technique I love. I wrote a big book on technique called The Tennis Technique Bible. Questions about tactics I enjoy. I don't know if I'm the software expert. I'm more of a hardware guy, but I would You know, do my best in the software realm if you have any tactical questions or mindset questions. That's uh, definitely an area of interest for me. What else? Spanish questions, questions about Spanish tennis. I wrote a book called The Secrets of Spanish Tennis, which I'm quite proud of, a very popular book. And I love talking Spanish tennis. So if you have any questions about the Spanish method, let me know. One of the topics tonight that I suggested we discuss is long drilling, the way the Spanish love to do the long drilling. All right, but we got some questions on other topics tonight, and let's roll with that, guys. This is not a program where I get on my soapbox and start talking about what I want. Sometimes I can steer the conversation that way, but mostly I, I want this program to be answers to questions. So so kind of responding to the audience and trying to help people resolve their their tennis, the debates that they're having in their mind on tennis uh, as best I can. And also sharing ideas within an intelligent community. That's what I kind of envision for the show. And the show is also for online students, students who are in our online school, uh, for them to ask questions too, for them to get a chance to pick my brain. And we have more and more people signing up for our online school at clta.teachable.com. Tim Treat is waving. And watching. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. I believe you're a a regular on the show. Thank you for watching. John Logan Minier Tennis says, I've got a new question on the board. I've seen two forehands work well in person, but never at a really high level. But I believe at least one pro uses two forehands. Yes, two one handed forehands is very rare. There's at least one guy on the Challenger circuit right now. I, I posted some of his videos. There might be another couple guys floating around with two forehands. There is also one Russian lady, and her name escapes my mind at the moment. I can probably remember it if I dig deep into my memory bank. But there's one Russian lady who made Top 100, and she actually had two forehands on the tour back in the 90s. So that's kind of interesting and we're talking about two forehands. There have been a lot more players with double-handed forehands, which I think is a very interesting combination of technique for tennis. And I, I love the double-handed. My son actually plays double-handed, double-handed forehand. And there's different combinations of grips on the double-hander. So some, some are like a two-handed backhand and then a, a two-handed forehand. Some are two-handed backhands on both sides. It's actually a double-handed backhand. Uh, or double-sided backhand, two-handed backhand on both sides. It's kind of confusing. So there's different ways to set up the double... I'll just call it a double-handed 4 So I like that variation, actually, very much. There's been a lot of top players like that. I like Suwei from Taipei. She's got an amazing double-hander. Monica Seles, double-handed. You know, you, you can g- roll through the list of champions. Uh, Bartoli... A lot of female players have been double-handed off both sides. Very popular, very popular double-handed forehand or double-handed backhand. There was a guy, ooh, slips my mind. What was his name? Oh, think of it in a minute. Very famous top 10 player back in the 70s who was double-handed. Fabrice Santoro. You know, I I actually am, am working on an article where I, I research all the double-handed players and two forehand players, it's a really interesting article. I gotta share it with you guys when it's finished. But what was that dude's name? Double hand. Sorry, slips my mind. But anyway, ask me a question about two forehands, man. Let's talk about how to turn a profit. Okay, John's changing the, Are you changing the subject here? Let's see what he says. Let's talk about how to turn a profit. Top three ways to make the best profit possible in a fair and honest way. Is, that, is this the right show? Is, is that a, a business question or a tennis question? Can you be more specific? I'm, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask about making lots of money because I chose the tennis profession, so that automatically means I'm probably not going to make millions, right? Jeff Siegel is watching. Thanks for waving, buddy. Christopher Lado, could be Yado, is waving. Thank you, man. Brandon says, Jan Michael Gamble. Great player, right? Another one, Jan Michael Gamble. Yeah, I'm actually, I have an article in the works with all of the players historically who had double hands and the different variations. The combinations are really interesting because some players hold a backhand on one side, two-handed backhand, and then they, they have no switch to the forehand side. And other players have a switch, like they shift their hands. What was that dude's name? It'll come to me later. Sorry, guys. Can't think of the dude's name from the 70s. Top 10 player. He was double-handed. He had two backhands. Two backhands, and he switched them that way. All right, Sean Zemanik is my buddy from, from... What's up, Sean? How you doing, man? Thanks for waving. Let me know any questions you have. I'm answering all questions relating to tennis tonight. Doing the best I can. Anthony Cunningham is waving. What's up, Anthony? Thank you for waving. Appreciate it. All right. John Logan Minier Tennis says, ha ha, definitely a business question, but focus on tennis business. Are you asking me how to make money from tennis? Okay. Well, one thing, you know, I think tennis coaches don't charge enough. I know that sounds crazy, but I think for professionals in the field, a lot of tennis coaches don't charge a premium. And I would like to see tennis coaches receiving more value for their time. And I mean an hour of their time. So that's one thing off the top of my head. I think coaches in general, if they're well educated, and they're very good at what they do, they should ask for slightly more per hour. Or they should try to increase their their rates. I think a lot of tennis coaches are unfortunately priced very low And there's sort of, in the world of tennis, people expect to do a lesson for whatever, 60 bucks or 70 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever. You know, I think if you're really good at what you do, and I'd like to see more tennis coaches good at what they do, they could charge more per hour. That's one way to make money. You know. And one of the things I'd like to see is the educational standards be higher for tennis coaches. Like to enter the coaching field, you have to have more education, you, maybe you have to have you know one of the new degrees the new degrees are fantastic the pro- professional tennis management degrees are excellent they're they're proliferating now they're all over the country now at different colleges and I would like to see a higher threshold higher standard for tennis coaches and then then we could charge more money per hour if we if we did that. But when we let everyone coach or anyone who can pick up a racket and and take a weekend course, it starts to devalue how much we make per hour I think at the same time and this is sort of a tough balancing act i think that tennis is a really expensive sport to play and we don't want to ruin the game by making a, a lesson too much so it's it's really a tough that's a tough one to weigh you know on the one hand coaches i think should earn more per hour they deserve more per hour for their their expertise and on the other hand i think it's a shame if Tennis lessons are out of reach for the average family. So I'm not sure how to rectify that. Don't know if that helps. I'll have to, I'll have to pick my brain about how to make more money as, as a coach. Well, I'll give you another example. I think the future is online. So I think if coaches want to do better and make more money, the future is online. The future is with blended learning, blended coaching, hybrid teaching, hybrid learning online. So I think anyone who's out there who runs a traditional coaching business, who's in the real world, brick and mortar, as they say, off court, offline, I think you guys got to get with the program and get online in some capacity, whether that's for promotional purposes or if that's an actual teaching, teaching mode, you know, teaching course or some teaching workshop or seminars or things like that. I think you're seeing this more and more that offline coaches are moving online and I think this is a huge trend in the, in the industry. It it may be in in its infancy, but you're going to see more and more offline coaches moving online, offering training online, offering modules and and seminars and workshops and different educational options online that support their their real-world coaching. And I, I think this is a big trend we have to watch out for. Sometimes it's called blended learning. Sometimes it's called hybrid learning. So I think there is a future in making more money online. And some of that's also promotional. You see many, many coaches now promoting online, starting their own shows. Hey, I'm one of them. Look what I'm doing. I have my own talk show Sunday night. I have my own reality show that I'm producing every week. So I'm I'm a bit, obviously I'm a big believer in this. I'm I'm part of the trend myself. And I think you'll see more and more high-level coaches like really even famous coaches, legendary coaches moving into an online operation, moving into the online space. Not not neglecting their offline. They're still going to be offline real-world coaches, you know, concrete brick and mortar coaches, but they're going to have this additional support, additional ways to make money, additional ways to, to, to teach to the world on, on, online. So that's, that's a trend to, to watch for as well. Let's see, what do we got? Michael Furman has a question. Michael, that's my OBD. That's my online business manager. Michael knows all about online coaching for youth training, what do you recommend? Longer or shorter rallies for training? Oh, yeah, Michael, you're talking about the first four shots deal, right? Hold on, i got to take my jacket off. Too hot, too hot. All right, let's get into it, guys. Let, let's talk about it. You know, come on. Let's, let's go. Huh. Jab, jab, straight, left hook. All right. So should I use the BS word? Should I use the shuck and jive word? Guys, I'm going to use this term for all you coaches out there, anyone who gets a chance to watch this or see the the posting. It's a term called critical thinking. It's a term they use a lot in college. And it's kind of a fancy term where you have to analyze claims, data, statistics observations and conclusions. You have to use your goddamn brain. You have to use your intelligence to analyze information. And I don't see a lot of critical thinking being done when, it, when we're talking about the first four shots, statistical analysis, and especially the recommendations, especially the recommendations for young kids. So there's two parts to this myth busting one is the statistics themselves and how they're collected how they're organized collated and transmitted how they how they're presented so there's one part that there's a big part of the debate is how are the stats how are the stats presented and collected and analyzed and I think there's a lot of mistakes being done there on that side of the equation. And then on the other side of the equation, you have, okay, what are the conclusions that we draw from this data? And those, those, those are where the, the, the myths are, and those are where the misleading recommendations are, and or, or those, those are where the, the, the facts are getting skewed and the recommendations may be off. So, like I said, I've argued this in previous shows, but basically, yeah. So John says, longer rallies for youth players getting shorter as the level of play increases. So that's a great thought, and I basically agree with that wholeheartedly, John. You know, when you have little kids, I mean, we can just talk about what I think is the right way. And when you have little kids, you should train them to rally long. I mean, come on. They're little kids. They need to learn what? Control. I sound like Tony Nadal. Buen control. Good control. Buen ritmo. You know, good rhythm. They need to learn patience, paciencia. Spanish way, guys. They need to learn how to build points through long rallies and little kids don't have a lot of weapons, so that that makes a lot of logical sense they don't have a lot of weapons when they're little so they they should learn how to win with their consistency you know they should learn good mental aspects such as focus and con- you know concentration and they want to build their you want to build their attention span and you want to develop also their physical traits like stamina so i I absolutely agree with that that's where you want to be working on with little guys, you know, little prodigies. I don't care what level they are, if they're prodigies or if they're, you know, even recreational players, they should be learning how to be solid. And then as the players get older and more advanced, as John is saying, you can start working on first strike. You start, they get bigger. So they have the ability to use, to weaponize their strokes. So it makes a lot of logical sense that as players get older You can start to focus on first four shots, which are the serve, the serve plus one, the return, and the return plus one. So SS1, RR1, perfectly good ways to to describe the first four shots, perfectly good things to focus on as a player becomes more advanced. Makes total sense to me. The problem is that a lot of coaches are not coming to those conclusions. They're seeing data. They're seeing statistics by people like Craig O'Shaughnessy, you know, and I, I don't know Craig at all. I just, I just know that he's kind of the leader in, in these statistics, that there, a lot of coaches in the, in the field, a lot of coaches in the trenches are taking this, this data. And I, like I said, I have questions about the data itself. I'm not sure the data is accurate. And that's where some of the critical thinking comes into play, where you got to ask intelligent questions about the way the stats are, are generated, the way they're collated, the way they're organized, the way, and the way they're presented. You have to ask critical thinking questions. And I don't see a lot of coaches doing that. You know, guys, you've got to use your thinker. You've got to use your thinkingator, as my wife likes to say. And a lot of coaches are like lemmings. I'm sorry to say, guys, I'm, I'm going to say it. A lot of coaches in the industry are like lemmings. You know the lemmings are the little animals And they follow each other and they jump off the cliff every year, commit suicide. Well, a lot of coaches in the tennis industry are like lemmings. And I don't know how it happened that way. But I don't want to get off on a rant here. But as soon as somebody comes out with a new study, quote unquote study, as soon as somebody comes out with new data or a new statistic... Or a new theory, everyone just runs to follow that theory, you know you know what I'm saying, and I think that is so wrong, and it it's so blatantly clear to me. I see it as clear as day is- and and I guess I've been around long enough that i've seen these I've seen these trends sort of appear before with other ish other topics issues in tennis, you know, but the latest fad is the first four shots is the latest fad it's like a fad you know it's like a it's a trend you know it's trendy and people need to put on their critical thinking they need to you know show up with their critical thinking skills and ask questions when 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 there's a new theory or a new study and it's being promoted heavily People in the tennis industry need to ask questions. They need to be a a little bit skeptical. You know, a good dose of skepticism is healthy. I'm not saying deny data because I'm a big believer in data. If you guys know anything about my teaching, I really believe in teaching based on evidence. And I, I believe in data. I'm a big technology guy. I believe technology is the future. The future of tennis analysis, there's a lot of data involved in the future of tennis analysis. You know, collecting data and analyzing data. So I'm all for this, guys, but you have to be critical thinkers when you evaluate the data that's being presented. You have to look into the details of a study. You can't just read the headline that someone, that someone feeds you without looking at the underlying chart or the numbers that underlie the headline. And so many tennis coaches, just they just listen or Or see the headline they listen to the headline they see the headline and they say okay now I got to change my teaching now I went I went to the symposium I went to the conference and -and so-and-so got up on stage and or got up on the court and said this is the new new thing and now I've got to go home and change but what I'm saying is you can have an open mind and and accept the, the new information, but also use your critical thinking skills to ask questions and to have a healthy dose of skepticism about what is being presented. And And don't be so quick to change your teaching method based on one study or one theory or one data set, because I think it's much better to wait for a preponderance of evidence. Just wait for a preponderance of evidence. Don't Don't turn the whole ship around based on one study or one person's opinion even if that person is very dynamic. And that's what I'm seeing happening now in the industry with this, you know, I call it the myth of the first four shots. And, and it's, it's a very complex subject to get into. It's not something that I think is, is, is simple. It gets very complicated, especially if you start going into the data and start looking at the way the statistics are compiled and presented and the recommendations that are garnered from the data that are that are taken from the data you know so all right let's see if i have a a few questions about this or or other tennis questions because after all this is a question and answer show this is not just me getting up and spouting my opinion about stuff uh let's see brian bleem is watching and brian has a question what's up brian what do you got for me my brother he says hi Chris random question what's with the Home Depot buckets as opposed to a big ball cart when you're training I kind of like the style thanks man you like my style that's a Spanish style man the buckets are the Spanish style it's pro- I don't know how it happened in Spain I think cuz they're cheap they don't have a lot of money historically so they always use cheap buckets like they use buckets of paint like old paint buckets they use buckets of like old candy buckets you know they they always have ball ball, they don't use a lot of baskets now it's, it's changing a little bit now because Spain is sort of commercializing and starting to sell out a little bit but old school traditional Spanish training is always with buckets maybe it started with Pato Alvarez Pato Alvarez is very famous for using buckets they don't say baskets that much in Spain they use the term buckets or cubo they use the word the cubo. The cubos are, are the buckets. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot, but in terms of the buckets, just to give you a short answer, Brian, they're really cheap. So they cost three or four dollars at Home Depot. They very rarely break. They last for years. You know, they make fantastic targets on the court. So you can use them in lieu of cones and stuff. And they don't move. Like if you fill them up with some balls, you can hit the target, and the target doesn't explode. You know, it doesn't move. So they're really great targets. And they fit about 80 balls. So what Pato Alvarez used to do in Spain probably still does. He's getting older. He's in his, he's in his mid-80s now. I think he's still on the court. So he would get three full buckets. And his system, depending on, depending on the level of the player... His system was to use all three buckets to completely annihilate that player. So that would be 80 plus 80 plus 80. uh, Mathematically, 240. So he would drain 240 balls in a row. And this gets back to what I was talking about, about the value of of long drilling. And so he would take, I've seen him do it. I've seen him do it live. You know, I studied studied with him uh, back in the day. One of my first trips to Spain, I I was on court with him for two weeks. It was amazing. It was an incredible experience. And so what he would do is he would drain one bucket and then two buckets and then three buckets until the player is just completely wiped out, you know. And, And that's how he did it with this slow, repetitive drilling and just endless drilling, man. Just feel sorry for those players, you know. Pato Alvarez would just destroy them with these slow steady, monotonous drilling that would never end, like literally never end. So that sort of gets back to the history of the buckets. So I've been using the buckets ever since. And what I really like about it is when you use those big carts, they're really clunky. They always break. They cost a fortune. You see a club that has like 10, 15 quarts, and they got like 10, 15 of those big carts. It costs, it costs a fortune. And you know the wheels always break or something's going wrong with them. And it's much better to have a few buckets. They're really cheap, cost four bucks each from Home Depot. And you, right away, you know you have 80 balls in each one. So when you're, you know, you can work a half bucket, you work a quarter bucket, and you know exactly how many balls you use, you know, 20 or 40 or 60. So it's really convenient. And I just, you know, I've just gotten used to it. I actually can't stand using metal hoppers or ba- or carts anymore. They're kind of heavy, they're kind of clunky, they get in the way. I love the buckets, man. If you have any more bucket questions, let me know. I'm a big fan of the buckets. But I actually like the mathematical side of it because you can take one bucket and you don't have to actually count that much. You can just sort of take a quick look at the bucket and be like, oh yeah, I just used a half bucket. I just did 40 balls. Or, oh yeah, I just trained this kid 120 balls, you know, it was a bucket and a a half. So it's a very easy way to gauge how you're working. A player helps. So, I see some old buddies on the show here. Bob Kersheimer is waving. What's up, Bob? How are you, man? How's Strong doing on the tour? That's my boy, Strong. He's doing great. What a hard worker. Strong Kersheimer on the pro circuit. Very hardworking kid. Very hardworking kid. And uh, Bob was uh, kind enough to let me help with, with Strong's technique a little bit when he was younger. And now he's... He's doing very well on the pro circuit. Thanks for tuning in, Bob. Appreciate it. Bob, do you have any thoughts about the new ITF transition tour, the, uh, the way it's structured? There's a lot of complaints online, a lot of complaints on Facebook about the new ITF world tour and how it's shutting out a lot of players uh, in terms of qualifying. The qualifying draws are much smaller now. You got any thoughts on that, Bob? What a strong thing. That will be interesting to ask him. He's probably at the level where he might be getting shut out of some draws, right? I don't know, I don't know where he's at right now. Where's his ranking at? 600, 800? I, I, didn't, I don't know where he was last check, but those are the guys. Some of those guys are really frustrated that they're not getting into enough draws, you know. Arthur Turnbill is waving. Philip Conley is watching. Thanks for waving, guys. Spencer Weinberg's waving. What's up? Spencer? How you doing, man? Is Super Bowl finishing up? Super Bowl wrapping up? We're doing pretty good competing against Super Bowl tonight, I must say. All right. Jim Kane says, please accept my excuse. Watch my team play. Defense, defense the Spanish way. That's right. Defense is the Spanish way. Jim, what do you think about this first four shots? Debate. Or should I say debacle? It's kind of interesting, right? It's kind of complicated, man. This this whole debate is quite complicated. Turn on some extra lights here. Ah, guys, first four shots, man. Why are so many tennis coaches like lemmings, man? You guys you guys got to use your thinking You got to ask questions. You got to look into the details. Don't accept one study even from the smartest people in the world like the best sports scientists we have there's very little corroborative data out there and i what i mean by that is you need to have more than one study by more than one person you need to have statistics by more than one party and when when you have when you have that kind of independent analysis going then you can be really sure of a the quality and the accuracy of the data you can be really sure of that and then b you can start to compare some of the recommendations that you see being made from the data. You know, that's the other thing. When you only have one source of the data, and then you have only one person interpreting the data, and that one person is giving all the recommendations, that is where you got to start using your critical thinking and say, okay, I mean, this person may be very good. I'm not saying this person is, is not good. But I need to question this person, I need to to look into the details, I need to analyze this information, and especially the the, the conclusions that are made for coaches in the field. So there's there's a lot to digest here, there's a lot to discuss, but you have to analyze the underlying study, and then you have to analyze the conclusions. And you have to look for corroborator corroboration, corroborative information. And I just don't see most tennis coaches doing that. Most tennis coaches, they go to a workshop, maybe they're lucky enough to go to a symposium or go to a conference once a year, and whoever's up there speaking at that workshop or that conference, that's basically gospel. And the next thing you know, those coaches are taking that information and using it back home, and they haven't really enough about it, they haven't asked enough of questions, they haven't investigated enough on their own, they haven't looked into the details, they haven't looked past the headlines, they haven't looked past the snazzy presentation. You know, guys got to think a little more, you know, think a little more deeply, ask more questions, be a skeptic, be skeptical. Being skeptical is, is wise, it shows some wisdom. Alright, Jim Kane says, interesting, return of serve, extra important, still learning. Yeah. The the biggest thing that that I think that the first four data tells us is that the serve and return are really important to work on. What do you guys think? I mean, I didn't need a fancy presentation. I didn't need a lot of data to tell me that, that the serve is super important developing a big serve, a first strike serve weapon. I didn't need a study to tell me that. How many of you guys needed a study to tell you that? So the same going with the return of serve. You see the best players in the world. They got a good serve. They got a great return of serve. You know, those are the first two shots. That's the S and the R. doesn't take a genius to figure out that that's really important. To work on those shots are really important. And then you have the S1 and the R1, which also makes a hell of a lot of sense to me to work on those, especially as a kid gets older, you know, because that's going to be the shots that help to dictate and control the point. You know, it makes sense to me to focus really Well, on those shots, too. So to have your mind in order to have the concentration on those shots, because sometimes at the initiation of a rally or the initiation of a point, players are sometimes out of rhythm. They don't develop a good rhythm and they make mistakes. So it makes sense to me from a mental and emotional perspective to focus on, though, that that beginning area, the beginning time of a point. And it makes sense that you need to have weapons. You know, I'm a big believer in that. What what should be the primary weapons? You got the serve, you got the return of serve. Those are shots that should be worked on. And Craig O'Shaughnessy and other proponents of first four shots training, like Sterling Strother, for example, those guys are absolutely right that there are pockets of coaching, there, there, there are coaches in the world who don't work on those shots enough, and they don't stress those shots enough. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, you have, you know, no disagreement there, right? But I, I do have a disagreement when you say, when people say, oh, we don't need to train long rallies anymore, because they're not as, they don't happen as frequently in a point, based on some statistical analysis, you know, or oh, the Spanish way of training is, is dead. You know, the way the Spanish train is a waste of time. They, they just hit balls endlessly, and it, that doesn't help you get better, you know. And I think that training with, with rhythm, training for rhythm, training for consistency, training for control, training for stamina, training for patience, training for shot tolerance is really, really important. Really, really important, especially for young kids and i 'll just keep making that case and i don 't need some data off the ATP tour to tell me that that's important to work on with young kids and what 's happening is the data that people like craig o'Shannessy are 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 promoting and 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 sterling Strather is promoting and and some other folks in the industry that information is really good information, but it's not that helpful for working with young players who are developing, and that's what I work with the most. You know, I work with a lot of young ones. And those kids need a base. They need a base of consistency. They need a base of control. They need to learn rhythm. And you're not going to get that. Another thing that they need is repetition. You know, repetition is how you learn motorically. And they need tough workouts. They need to learn discipline. And when you train just One, two, three, four shots, you spend a lot of time on the serve and return, and you don't work the long rallies, you don't work the rhythmic consistency exercises. If you don't train the Spanish way, the long drilling, the player doesn't suffer as much. So that's one major criticism that I have. The player is just not suffering. And I think young kids should learn to suffer. And one of the best ways to teach a young player to suffer is using the long Spanish drills, you know, the Pato Alvarez drills, the Luis Bruguera method. And I found this, it's just a fantastic way to teach a kid discipline, the disciplina and the suffering, you know. And I just don't think you're going to get that. If you follow the prescription of Sterling, if you follow the prescription of, uh, from Craig O'Shaughnessy the the recommendations are are really good for players who are more advanced you know or they're really good for players who have a great base but i think those recommendations are not as helpful for young kids you know so that's that's what i'm going to say about it i think we need to we need to build a base and even as the kids are getting older we need to train both you need to train your players in all the all the ranges of the rallies so Yes, as they get older, they need to work on first strike, big serve, aggressive return, aggressive S1, aggressive R1. But not, not exclusively. You know, you still have to train the grind. You still have to train some of the rallies. Your player has to be prepared for those big moments where the point may go longer. So that's sort of you know, where I'm at. That, that's the way I see it. Scott Groth, or Groth, sorry, Scott, I don't know, it's Groth probably, says tennis is a plus one sport. If you can hit four, I'll hit five. If you can hit 20, I'll hit 21. Okay, so that is the common philosophy in Spain. So I would tend to agree with you. But at the top level, you know, some of the data is showing that players are, are striking early a lot of what i think you see in the in the first four data is just that the serves are getting bigger you know that's something that i would like to debate with some of these folks you know doesn't some of the data let's just let's say the data is accurate which i'm not sure it is you know just for the sake of argument because when you start getting into the weeds of the data and how it's collected and what's the margin of error and things like that it's it's maybe it's not the most interesting conversation to me it's interesting because i i like to dig into those kind of things but Maybe it's not the most interesting thing. But let's say that is relatively accurate, which I don't, I'm not sure that it is. But let's just say for the sake of argument that 70% of the points on tour on average are less than four shots, which I doubt that's that's accurate. But let, let's say it is, right? All right. Sterling's on the line here. What's up, Sterling? So Sterling just uh, joined in. Maybe he can join in the conversation a little bit. Let's say that that is uh, correct, right? So you know that that that, for me as as a junior coach, you know that doesn't it doesn't mean that much for me as a junior development. But it also my question is doesn't that couldn't that just indicate that the guys are getting bigger and and the serves are are getting more more effective? You know, all we see a trend for bigger players on tour, we see higher velocity serves, we see bigger serves in general, right? So doesn't a lot of that data just, isn't that one possible conclusion that players are serving bigger? Can somebody answer me that? You know, so if if shots are, if rallies are getting shorter, I mean, couldn't one possible conclusion be that just the serving is is getting, the ser, serves are massive. And players are taller and bigger. You have players like Isner. You have players like Karlovich. You have players like, you you name it. How many players are over six six nowadays on on the ATP? A lot of guys. So to me, just common sense. If if rallies are getting shorter, if you're going to factor in the, the the serve, you know the aces, I'm not sure you can you should include that in your in your data. Um, I think it skews the data a lot. But let's say you do include the the big the big servers, the aces, the service winners, you know. To me it just tells me that the serve is the dominant shot in tennis still. Not even getting to the return yet. Returning is really important in the modern game too, but but just take the serve just on its face, you know. Doesn't it, it, couldn't we just sum up a lot of of what we're seeing if the data is accurate? It's you see a lot of big servers That you got to have a big serve these days to dominate. Maybe with a few exceptions, you know, a few exceptions for guys who have incredible returns or amazing speed, you know, like Djokovic maybe doesn't have the greatest serve of all time, a pretty good serve, but just incredible return and, and amazing wheels and consistency and things like that. But to me, it, it, I don't need the statistical analysis to tell me that I should be working on developing a big serve with my players. I've been doing that for years. I don't need statistics to tell me that I need to have a really good return, you know, so Sterling says, thanks for contributing, Sterling. I know this is a subject that's near and dear to your heart, and you've you put a lot of thought into it. But I, and I'm certainly not trying to flame your work. I'm just, I, I was saying earlier, before you logged in here, I was saying how we, we have to use our critical thinking skills as coaches, and we have to ask detailed questions, and we have to always have a skeptical eye towards data and analysis. I think that's very important. And we have to look for corroboration when we're when we hear uh, conclusions and we when we hear presentations and things like that. So Sterling says points have always been short, right? And yes, bigger serves are in play, but serve and volley wasn't played 20 to 30 years ago. So, but serves are definitely bigger nowadays, right? Can we all agree on that? That servers are. Are hitting more aces and more service winners is that is that true or not it's gonna be tough to maybe prove that because we don't have the big data from the 70s the 80s and the 90s see this is where this is where I have uh, this is where some of the critical thinking skills come into play so when you look at a window of five years so like if Craig O'Shaughnessy says well in the last five years the rallies are getting shorter okay well that's only 5 years that's a small window I really want to see 10 years or 15 years or 20 years but then maybe maybe nobody has the data on that nobody has good data you also have to say okay is the data accurate you know was it collected well was it collated w- well put together well you know sifted correctly you know this is uh, you know, a lot of data in tennis, sometimes, the, the, you know, when you chart a match, sometimes you get some of the data wrong when you chart a match, you know, whoever, whoever plugging in that data. But anyway, my point is, can we all agree that servers are serving, serves are better nowadays than they were back in the day? Like everyone's serving big now, right? Wouldn't we all pretty much agree on that? There Are there more aces on tour now than there were back in the day? That's a good question. More service winners. Somebody could could in somebody could check on that, right? But my point is, okay, rallies are getting shorter, but the serves are huge. The players are taller nowadays. I think that's a fact statistically, right? You want to talk about statistics. I don't I don't have that statistic, but I would I would wager that players are getting taller and taller right now, the average height. We're gonna talk about averages, right? So the serves are coming down with higher velocity. The, the average velocity of a first serve also is, I think, increasing on tour average. You know, these are all things somebody can check. Tell me if I'm wrong, but someone can check. Uh, see, when I claim something, I always say, check it. You know, let, let's, let's have it independently analyzed. But, you know, so that, that to me is a big factor when you see if, in fact, rally length is going down a little, I mean, to me, that just, that's probably the reason because the serves are massive. Players are serving bigger and bigger with higher velocity. That's one one observation, you know. So, Sterling, how do we know for sure what the rally length was in the 70s and 80s? Because we don't have data from that. We don't have a lot of data. I mean, who was keeping data in the 70s and 80s? Not many people. You had Vic Braden doing some research at the tennis call at his tennis college, but you know, I don't know if that was. If that's like those were scientific studies, you know, like verifiable scientific studies like Vic Braden was doing some research back in the day. And that's like that. Is that kind of all we have, you know, because that's not the most reliable data, I would say, you know, we don't have much to go on. I mean, was was IBM and Infosys doing data in the 70s and 80s? Do we really know what the average rally length was in the 70s and 80s? Let's take the 80s. what, What was the average rally length in the 80s? Do we know? What was the average rally length in the '90s? How do we know? How do we know for sure? Because we don't we don't have that quantifiable data, do we? So that's what that's what I mean. A lot a lot of this stuff is is you know you have to be careful what what we what we claim. Uh, you know, I don't. Any any thoughts on that, guys? You want to want to share? I can talk about what I think for for recommendation. Okay, getting back to the coaching aspect, we, you know. I think the data discussion is kind of, maybe, maybe it's in too much in the weeds for a lot of you guys, you know. But getting back to the coaching implications, little kids need to learn how to suffer. How are you going to make a kid suffer if you're stressing S, S1, R, R1? You know, it's tough to develop a drill where a kid suffers when the shots are, are quite short. Or the rallies are quite short. So that, that's one observation. I really think little kids need to learn how to suffer. Little kids need to learn discipline. And I like to see, I like to develop the aerobic capacity of my juniors, you know. And to me, the only way to develop the aerobic is with the best way is with long, long grinding rallies. And if a coach is really obsessed with first four, sometimes the practice is not that tough because it's a practice where like stay not 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 to uh criticize you too much Sterling but like let's take you, you take a typical practice where you're working on the the mental and emotional and you're working on shot selection Sterling and I I've seen some of your videos which I think are actually I think I like a lot of the stuff you're doing but those practices are not going to make a kid suffer right they're more of a practice where you know you're talking about decision making you're talking about mindset and tracking the ball and things like that. and A lot of times, those types of lessons are they're discussion-based lessons. They're lessons where you have to ask a lot of questions of a player. You have to stop the action a lot. I've done lessons like that. I do, I do lessons like that, and, and I know going in that those lessons are not going to grind a player down that much because I'm working up here. I'm working on the player's software. Basically, what I'm saying is software lessons are inherently less grinding, they're less abusive to a player, I mean abusive in a good way. They're, they, they make a player suffer less, they don't suffer, they don't cause the player to suffer as much because they're working on the software aspects, they're not working on the hardware. A hardware lesson oftentimes can be designed to make a kid suffer, so... I see that difference right away. I think if you do too much in the software, too much in the first four, you, you, the kid loses some of that toughness, some of that discipline, some of that suffering capacity. And so I think we have to be careful in recommending a lot of first four training to especially young kids because I want them to develop that men, those mental strengths. You know, Does that, that make sense? Is that fair? So I'm not saying don't do it. I'm not saying don't work on first strike, don't work on big serve, don't work on big, uh, you know, aggressive S one. That that is fine for me, but but not not, but not neglecting the the long grinding suffering type practices, you know. And and the other thing, as a technician, I think that the long rallies and the long drills. We were talking about long Spanish drilling earlier in the show. The longs long type drilling, ultra long drilling, it develops the muscle memory better than short drilling. So the longer you go, the more repetitions you're getting in a certain time frame without as many stops. So for me, that's also very important. As a technician, I'm building the muscle memory of my players. I'm building the motoric skill of my players. And that is easier to do with long repetitive drills, longer, longer sets, you know, lo- more repetitions. And if you do too much S, S1, R, R1 focus, you're not getting that muscle memory work for the young ones. Now, once they have that base, once the players have a good base, then I think you're free to work a lot more in that area. Like if you see Sterling's program for Transform the Practice Court, just really good stuff in there. It's his uh, his tactical training program and and mind and also mindset training. You know the whole package there. It's a great package. I I just would say, if we got we got to get these kids suffering. We got to get the motoric skills great, and then we can we can transition them into more of this. You know we can transform that practice court that way. You know that that seems to me really good. You know, that that's kind of the way I see it. But I would underweight that type of training when the kid is younger. They're not fully formed yet. I would underweight that training. And I would start to overweight that training if I had an older advanced kid who's a transitional pro, ITF junior, top national ranked junior. I would definitely overweight the tactical first four, first strike, big serve, big return, you know. That kind of work to me is much more appropriate for an older, higher level player. That's just, that's the way I see it. And I got to call it the way I see it. I think it's definitely a mistake. You have an older, higher level player and you're just doing like consistency drills all day long. And I think that's what Craig O'Shaughnessy is pointing out. That's what people like Sterling are pointing. You know, people like Sterling are pointing that out and they're trying to transform the the, the, the training that coaches are doing. But I think that a lot of times the message is being misconstrued and that a lot of coaches are taking the message and they're they're taking they're interpreting the data the wrong way. They're they and they're, they're basically saying now that they don't have to work on consistency anymore. They don't they don't have to work on long rallies anymore. I think that, that is a a mistake, you know. So, let's see what Gordon says. Gordon has a follow up, I think. Gordon says, Jim says, serving placement has improved variety of serves. Yeah, I think serving has gotten bigger. To me, that that that's one of the main reasons you see rally length going down is because we have these beasts out there. Have you been to a pro tournament and see the guys walking around? These guys are just gigantic. They're giants. The women, too. The women are getting bigger, too, man. So that has to affect the rally length, right? If 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 all if if the serves coming down from the treetops at at the highest velocities we've ever seen, that has to affect the rally length, right? It's just going to shorten the rallies just by the de- by nature by default. There it's going to shorten rallies. I mean, I, I don't know if it means we have to change all of the ways we're training young kids because of that statistic. You know what I'm saying? It just means as the kids get older. And they get bigger, they're going to be serving bombs. Just that's, that's my one simple take. I know the return is a factor, too. Uh, and I'm talking about serve right now. But to me, you know, that, that's a big part of it. All right. Gordon Paul says, need kids to develop discipline to maintain long rallies as well as attack off short balls. If a kid can end points on the four shot, OK, but need to do both. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, and I agree, I agree, you need to teach both. Kids need to learn how to grind, and they need to learn how to strike, strike first. To me, when you see a guy like a big guy, maybe like a Zverev, or let's say a Kevin Anderson, when you see a big guy who's got weapons, but who also has a good discipline, good shot tolerance, good patience, you know what I'm saying? those guys to me are the most impressive they have the weapons they have the cannon they have the bomb serve you know they have the flamethrower but then they can also set back into a grind and they can move well to me that's the best of both worlds that's what i want for my players i want i want that base of consistency that solid backcourt play and i also want the weapons i want it all i want the complete package so i think we're all sort of talking about how do we get to that? How do we get there? You know, and what I'm saying is when the kids are young, I have a certain method, a certain set of criteria that I'm looking for. I mentioned it already. You know, it's the suffering, it's the grinding, it's the patience, the consistency, the the toughness, the physical toughness, the mental toughness. And as they get older, then I feel more... Free to overweight the other types of weapon training and first strike training, but that—that's kind of how I do it. Now, maybe, maybe the, another coach has another way, but but the way that I do it is the way that's been proven in Spain for the last thirty, forty years. I think I, I'm standing on pretty solid ground when I I base my methods on on what's what's been successful in Spain, and and I'm building, trying to evolve what they do in Spain. That's sort of where I'm coming from. And I just don't like to see un, uh, unfair criticism of what they, what they do in Spain, too. I, I've talked about that on previous shows. All right, Sterling says, let's see. Ooh, it's a long comment. Exactly. And he does both. So I think that's kind of what we're saying. There's sort of, there's sort of both. There, there should be both. But the, the thing is that, that a lot of coaches now are justifying not training, well, for one, not training consistency, Sterling. A lot of young, uh, a lot of coaches working with young kids now are saying that like based on Craig's data, they don't have to train long grinding or that the Spanish way is not useful or beneficial. Or even kids are saying this now. How about that? How about a kid comes to you and says, hey, coach, why do, you, why do I need to grind during this lesson? You know, the latest data shows that when I'm a pro, the shot's the rallies are going to be short and that I really need to focus on my first strike because if I win my first strike points, I'm probably going to win the match. You know, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if kids are making that argument now. You know, kids will bring it up with their coaches or coaches will bring it up with their kids or coaches will be under the false impression that that's the way to develop a kid. Or that's the main, that should be the main focus that they're overweighting in practice. So that's sort of what I'm getting at too. The data is very, when you present data in a certain way with a certain headline, it's really powerful because a lot of people don't, they don't critically look at what's underneath and they don't critically analyze the recommendations or maybe they don't understand the recommendations. You know, Uh, Sterling says, ah, he did a drill for 25 minutes straight and his son suffered that's great. And that would be sort of a Spanish style of drilling. You know, the classic Spanish style would be a long, long grinding drill that, that wears a player down through attrition. You know, that's that is a, a very common method in, in Spain. And my question was, is that outdated? I don't I don't I don't think it's outdated. I think it's beneficial. But Sterling says, okay, so he did the long grinding drills and it, it had those benefits. But he says, okay, there's not solid proof that long drilling produces muscle memory. Actually, it can affect the player negatively because the mind becomes overtired. Okay, I think I will debate you on that. I think I will say that I disagree. In my experience, long drilling is better for technique if the player is focused, obviously. I know what you're saying, the player can get tired and the technique can get sloppy. But for me as a technician, there's some secret sauce. There's some secret sauce. When you work a player to where they're tired and you force them to do the technique correctly, when they're fatigued, there's some magic that happens motorically. And I can't prove it, so I'm not I'm not basing this Opinion on data or science or a scientific study or motoric skills uh, Study but I'm saying in in my experience building technique I I believe there's some magic that happens when you get a kid really tired and you put them under duress I've said this before when you put a kid under tremendous duress Physical duress and they're fatigued and you force them to do the technique correctly something magically happens in the The wiring in the brain and the nervous system that helps them, that helps to sear in that muscle memory, to sear in the technique, so that when that player is faced with a similar situation in a match where they're where they're equally under duress, where they're equally under pressure, they're able to lock in that technique and perform it. So I found that that's very true, and I think it's one of the secrets that I use if I have a secret. It's, a, it's an important part of my method when I'm building technique. But I think what Sterling is saying that if you go too long, the quality goes down. And so that is a, maybe a counter argument. And there's definitely truth to that. What I'm saying is you force the players not to break down. You, you force them to be correct, to be precise with their technique. When they're fatigued, you force them. You don't allow them to fail As they get fatigued so that that's sort of what I'm getting at there Uh, let's see Sterling continues it's a long comment yes yes I know I know uh, Craig is one of the big proponents here on this topic so some some of my observations are are towards him but he he won't answer my questions you know like I, I posted on Facebook some very legitimate questions. I was not confrontational. I was not, I was not stirring the pot or being disrespectful. And I asked some very legitimate questions on one of his recent Facebook posts. I'm talking about Craig O'Shaughnessy. I asked some totally legit questions about sample size. I asked a question about uh, uh, one of his conclusions based on the trend of the data the last five years. Because Craig put a new post on Facebook and he wouldn't respond to my my comment. He responded to other people's comments, but not mine. And I felt I was totally respectful. I'm, I'm not. I, I honestly want to know. I want to know what was the sample size, you know? What was the sample size in 2015? You know, I, I don't think a one percent change over over five years is is that statistically significant to me. That's probably within the margin of error, whatever the error of the of the collection of the data or whatever. I don't really know, but but you know, to me, if someone asks intelligent questions, if someone's a healthy skeptic, I would like the person who is making the the, the recommendation and, and providing the statistic to try to answer me, you know, answer me honestly, and let's have a let's have a discussion about it, you know, like in a respectful way. And I haven't seen that. It's like when I was disc- when I was debating game based approach with Mike Beryl, online and Mark Tennant, you know, especially with Mike Beryl, I asked some very important questions about GBA and whether it was, you know, whether games-based approach is applicable and helpful for all learning styles and, and all personalities. And, and he just wouldn't, wouldn't entertain my, my question, you know, respectful, respectfully. So I asked the questions. More than one question. And when someone sort of ignores uh, a, a, an important question in, in my mind. They they are they are trying to evade. They are trying to evade something. You know, that's that's the way I see it. I had the same issue with Mike Beryl, who is one of the leaders of GBA in England and in Europe. And I had some very important questions that I asked him, and and he, instead he was sort of. I think he had, he attacked me like made ad hominem attacks on my intelligence. He accused me of not knowing what I was talking about. You know, it was even worse. That's even worse. I mean, at least, at least, uh, I mean, at least, if someone doesn't answer, it's not going after me personally. But you know, like Mike Barrow was telling me that I'm, I, I, you know, he implied that I, I didn't know what I was talking about, and that you know, basically telling me that I don't even have, I don't even deserve to be on the same platform to ask him questions. You know, which I think is, is not, it's not very, not very respectful. You know, and it, and it just, it just shows me that. When someone doesn't want to get into that discussion or argument, it usually means that, that they don't feel comfortable with that terrain. They don't feel comfortable with that question. They don't feel comfortable with the where, where I'm going with that topic, which I think is a shame because that, that is a part of critical thinking. We have to ask critical questions. We have to ask detailed questions. We have to analyze uh, where where the information is coming from. We have to investigate. You know, That's what smart people should do. All right. Yeah, yeah, Sterling. I get it. I get it. I know. I know you. You don't like being uh, completely linked with with Craig. I, I. I don't know. I don't know Craig at all. He seems like a good guy. I. I, I don't. I. I don't. I don't mean any uh, disrespect. I honestly think that that it's possible some of the statistics are, are 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 there's some error in the the collection and the presentation, and I and I think some of the recommendations are are being misunderstood by a lot of coaches out there in the field right now. And I just think that's a shame, you know, because I love data. Believe me, I'm all for data. I'm a big believer in data and evidence. So I'm not one of those naysayers who's like, oh, data is a waste of time. It's no good. I, I'm, all, I'm all for that. Yeah. All right. We've got some new viewers on the show. Pankaj Kumar Jatav is waving. Thank you, man. Thank you for enjoying the show. Sterling adds, okay, another comment from Sterling. If you're a coach who doesn't emphasize suffering, the kids aren't going to play at a high level. I'm saying, though, that if a player cannot start a point with a plan, they are going to have a hard time winning. Sterling, I think we agree that it's both, man. We agree that it's both. I'm saying when they're little, try to get the suffering training in then, and then once that's built in, you can you can work on these these tactical intentions. You know you can work on the game plan R1 R R1 S, S1. These are really good things to work on. Really valuable things to work on. When the player has that suffering and that grinding capability already embedded inside of them, it's it's so great to overweight that type of tactical work. That's the software, man. It's really good. I'm I'm not saying it's not good. So I, I think we, we can definitely agree in this, in this area. But I don't think a lot of coaches understand that. I think a lot of coaches and players are now taking some of the information from Brain Game. They're taking some of the information from Craig. And, and, a, and a lot of that information is, is, is good information. Even if I question some of the way the way it is collected and analyzed or, or, or sifted, you know, I think a lot of it's good because I'm all for evidence and data. But a lot of players and coaches are taking that information, and man, they are not—they are using it to justify training in a very short attention span way, and that's that's a big concern for me. I mean, I mean, maybe it's good for me because those kids aren't going to be that good. You know, maybe it's good for my kids. My kids will be winning more matches, I guess. But you know, I always try to think about the industry and I think about children, how they're learning. I, I try to be sort of a watchdog, and I try to be a, a source of wisdom and 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 intelligent questioning and advice. I try to, I'm trying to be that 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 person, you know, you know, see who sees things a little differently. I, I, one of the things over over my Life is in my academic career. Is I think I've been very good at thinking outside the box, and I'm a natural skeptic. I don't know if it's growing up in New York City or what, but I've always been a, a skeptic, and I and I've always been I've never been afraid to challenge challenge prevailing beliefs. You know, I've never been afraid to be an iconoclast and, and to challenge tradition and to challenge uh, the the status quo. So I think that's that's something that I do very well. All right, Jim Kane says, the cream will usually settle at the top near the end of a game, so the complete package player with confidence, trust, and condition wins. Laver pretty much supported my contention when he talked to some of us about the young upstart challenging a veteran champion player. Harry Hopman surely made his players suffer, and it paid dividends. Harry Hopman was one of the first coaches who really got into the physical and making players suffer Who became famous and actually a lot of Spanish coaches studied with Harry. I know for a fact that Luis Bruguera, the legendary Spanish coach, spent time with Harry Hopman and Harry Hopman has been a a role model and a mentor to many uh, successful coaches on the ATP tour and in junior development nowadays. So for generations of coaches, uh, they've learned from Harry Hopman and that was one of his things. You know, he worked players very, very hard. Uh, in in a physical way, he definitely made players grind and suffer, which I think was one of his great assets, one of his great strengths. So, yeah, the, I just think there's a danger that coaches may may lose that in the in the the translation and understanding of of first four shots information, right? So, uh, one of the things that I hear being said a lot, just uh, on the on a related note, is you you hear. People saying, well, Djokovic now is striking earlier and Rafa is is working on being more aggressive. Okay, Yeah. So those guys, that may be true. Right. And and, uh, Craig is on Novak's team, you know, as a data analyst. And so, you know, I'm sure uh, he's helping Novak a lot. But for example, Novak and Rafa, take those guys, when they were young, do you think they were focusing on first four when they were young, when they were little, at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12? I mean, I, I can, I wasn't there, guys, but I'm, I'm pretty sure those guys were grinders and those guys were consistent. How about Andy Murray? How about Roger? How about any top pro? I mean, what pro made it without learning a good base of consistency, without learning how to suffer and and to have uh, patience when they're constructing points. I mean, how many, how many players make it without that? Djokovic is very steady. Rafa is extremely steady. These, kids, these guys learned consistency when they were little. You know, they learned, they learned through rhythm and they learned how to control the ball. They learned how to be patient. They learned how to be solid. I mean, that's what they say in Spain, how to be solid. So when you take a player like that who's learned all of the mental aspects that they need to have, you know, Djokovic, Rafa, Murray, they learn how to suffer. Murray was in Spain for many years as a teenager learning how to suffer, learning how to grind. You know, he was at Sanchez Casal training with Pato Alvarez, doing 50, 100, 240 ball drills like I was mentioning at the beginning of the show. I mean, Murray was doing that. When you have a player who's done all of that for years, And then they get older and they get on tour, let's say, and then the coach comes along and the coach or data analyst says, hey, you know, really got to strike first here. There's a big benefit to striking early, big benefit to working on your serve a lot, big benefit to working on your return, your S, your S1, your R, R1. Hey, that's great advice. That's really smart advice. The problem that I have is when those same people start telling the junior developers that you see what i'm doing here with rafa you see what i'm doing here with with novak that's what you should do with your little kids and and that to me is where the is that a non sequitur is that a false logical leap i think that's where there's a false logical leap you know that's where the that's where the recommendation starts to break down the information starts to break down there because What's good for an ATP pro, an adult, fully formed, advanced ATP player, is not necessarily good for a little eight or nine-year-old who's learning the game. I don't think we should train those players the same way or with the same intention. Does that make sense? All right, Sterling says, agreed, technique must be tested under fatigue. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer in that. I, I say it's my secret sauce. I say that's where the magic happens. To me, if technique is not trained under duress, a lot of times it just doesn't get seared into the brain and nervous system the same way. It, it doesn't have, there's something missing, you know. And usually when the player is in a match and they get under extreme pressure or extreme duress, the technique a lot of times won't hold. It won't hold up. And I don't really understand how it happens motorically. There's something special happening in the brain and nervous system when you're getting the technique really, really good under duress. Uh, For example, the famous coach Robert Lansdorp, I think he is a good example of a coach who builds great technique under duress. Because he's very intimidating, he really gets the fight or flight going in a player and then he makes sure the technique is great. So to me, there's just something about that. When you're training technique, if you can get the kid's fight-or-flight mechanism going, you get their nervous systems kind of jacked up, their anxiety's up, they're feeling a lot of pressure, and then you force them to do the technique correctly, there's some kind of magic that happens motorically when you do that. It's like, that's why I said a secret sauce. And Landsdorp's a great example of that. Because very intimidating, puts the kids under a lot of pressure, and then he makes him hit the ball precisely. He makes him hit the ball with precision under pressure, under stress, under fatigue. So I think that's really important. It's secret. I don't think a lot of, a lot of coaches do that. I think a lot of coaches, when they see good technique, they stop and they don't continue working the player to the point of extreme duress. And I think that's when a, that's when something really special happens with the technique. Lansdorp's a good example of that. My old coach, Gilad Bloom, who I I consider to be a a, a genius technician, he's still here in New York. He was like that. I really first learned that from him. You know, he was quite intimidating. He was an intimidating figure, and he was very tough. And he would push us so hard and make, make sure that our technique was perfect under duress. And I just, I thought there was some sort of something special to that that a lot of coaches don't replicate. A lot of coaches don't do it that way. So anyway, that's my, that's my opinion on that, you know. All right, Sterling says, everything is debatable and that's how we all grow. Yeah, all right, that, that's what I'm saying, you know. I, I, I would just appreciate if, if I have some uh, in, important question that is a reasonable question, a respectful question. It'd be nice to get an answer, I'll tell you that much. It'd be nice not to be ignored. Uh, I, so the main main questions that I have right now are, are I have a lot of questions about the data compilation uh, of the first four stuff, and I have a lot of questions about GBA, the games-based approach. These are two hot topics in tennis that I, have, I personally have a lot of interest in as a junior developer, and I just have a lot of honest in, and, I think, intelligent questions about the conclusions and the way and the way the studies are done and things like that. These are important important topics in my mind. That, important issues that I, I want to explore more. But I can't explore anything if no one's willing to engage in an honest debate. You know that's that's the way it is. All right. See you later, Sterling. Have a good night, buddy. Jimmy Morales is waving. Tina Samar is waving. Thank you guys for watching. New new on the program, maybe. Sterling says great job. Talk later. Thanks Sterling. You're doing a great job too, man. Sterling's a very intelligent coach and and those are the kind of people I'm talking about. Sterling definitely has uh his critical thinking cap on at all times and we need more coaches like that. I mean, that's a good role model for all of us out there, you know, always questioning, always investigating always looking beyond the claim beyond the headline guys this is the way we need to be in the tennis industry critical thinking looking for details asking lots of questions being naturally skeptical this is healthy this is intelligent this shows some wisdom you know it reminds me sort of like you see in the political debate, not, not to get political, but you see in the political debate of our time right now where, where people are, able, are being swayed on social media, people are not using their critical thinking skills to evaluate news, and it's, it's maybe a symptom of our culture right now, a symptom of our time. And I just see it in the tennis community. I see it in the tennis world very clearly that coaches don't use their critical thinking. They don't question enough. They're not skeptical enough. You can't just take someone's wor- someone's newest theory or, or the newest study. You have to wait maybe you might have to wait five or 10 years for another study or, or some for some corroboration. You have to use your critical thinking. So you see that now in, in, in uh, you know, in politics and in the media now where where people just believe everything they see on their Twitter feed. They don't take the time to investigate. And that's what I'm seeing here with with this debate and with, with other debates in tennis. I see many coaches who don't take the time to investigate. They don't take the time to ask questions. They're not skeptical. They don't look for details. And they just believe the hype. They believe the headline. And I think that is a surefire way to make some coaching mistakes. Jeremy Speicher is watching. What's up, Jeremy? Thanks for waving. I appreciate you tuning in every week, buddy. I appreciate all the regulars on this show. Guys, you guys are what make the show great, all the questions. I try to add some some of my flavor, some of my intelligence to the show, but but also what's exciting is how we attract a lot of intelligent viewers to the show and, and we we all get to sort of share ideas. That's what makes the Sunday show so good. Let's see, do we have any more uh, technical or tactical questions, guys? We had a nice discussion here about the first four, and what I say is a little bit of myth-busting regarding the first four, uh, the first four tactical uh, analysis and, and statistical analysis that's being done right now. We had, I think we touched on the drilling aspect, whether we should drill long or short. And a lot of the conclusions that we're, we're coming to, at least I'm coming to, is that it's it's both. There's a middle ground, and we're going to have to use our critical thinking skills to decide uh, what is the best way to train kids. You know, long drilling, drilling can be really good. Short drilling and bursts can be really good. First four training can be really good. Long consistency training can be really valuable, too. These are all useful tools that we have as coaches we have to use our intelligence to determine what's right for the player in front of us and that depends on their age that depends on their personality that depends on their skill level you know so these are sort of the factors that we need to to weigh as coaches but it's it's just not as simple as saying the data says this therefore we need to train everyone like this i mean that it's 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 not like that guys okay Jim Kane says, I use it to lay on the line, recall my captain on the basketball team. Hold on. I'm trying to read that. Jim, I don't understand that comment. Is that a story from your basketball days? Oh, <laughs> sounds like good. You tell me later, man. Tell me the story later. All right, guys, it's getting a little late in the evening. I think I, I got to go night-night. Let's check in with Sammy. I think he's gone night-night. Sammy, you want to say goodbye to everyone? Yeah? Want to say bye-bye? Say night-night? Oh, my Sammy. He's a good boy. He's going to say night-night. Night-night, everybody. There he is, star of the show. What a face. What a face. Guys, if there's no more questions, I'm going to kind of wrap up here. Uh, please, if you if you miss some of the program, you should be able to catch it on on Facebook, and I will also transfer it over to the archives at our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel is YouTube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. I see Dave Schwartz tuning in. What's up, Dave? My old college coach. How are you, buddy? It's good to see you. I'm just uh, signing off here. We had a really good show. Maybe you can you can catch some of the the discussion that we had earlier on the replay. But guys, we'll have the replay on Facebook. We have the archives of all of these shows. This is our 11th episode, so we're we're doing pretty well this season, Uh, 11th episode of this show on youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. That's our YouTube channel. Also go to the YouTube channel to see my reality show. I'm really proud of my reality show. I don't know many tennis coaches that have a reality show. I always wanted my own reality show. So we got that going on. And we did our 21st, I think we did our 21st episode of season one on the reality show. So we actually have 21 episodes on our YouTube channel right now. You can check it out. Uh, all, a lot of them are live with me working on court with my players. We have a lot of really good shows. So check that out. I don't know anyone else who's doing that. Who else is got their own reality show on the tennis court, man. You know? Yeah, it was a great show, guys. Good discussion, good debate. I try to keep it really respectful, guys. I don't really want to flame anyone or trash anyone. I just want people to use their critical thinking skills, and I want tennis coaches to ask questions and to be more, a little more skeptical when they're presented uh, the latest theory or the latest recommendation, you know? And... What else you know give the show a like give, give me a thumbs up if you if you like the show and I will check the comments later if you missed the show you weren't able to get uh, a question out, I will check the comments later guys so please add some comments. I will go through the comments and try to answer any questions that I miss. I hope I didn't miss anything. I think it's time for a good night I'm looking forward to a great week. I hope you guys are looking forward to a great week too. Thank you for tuning in. It was my honor to answer your questions tonight and i will see you guys on the next program have a good night god bless have a wonderful week
0: thanks for listening to the show you can find archives of all chris's shows at youtube.com forward slash chris lewitt or search chris lewitt on youtube you can watch the live video broadcast of this program weekly on sunday nights where you can ask questions and comment in real time on facebook live Just search Chris Lewitt on Facebook to join the live show. Please share our programs with friends and join our online community. You can join Chris Lewitt's online tennis academy at clta.teachable.com or visit chrislewitt.com for more info. Chris's latest published articles and additional video resources can be found at prodigymaker.com. Thanks again and see you next time.